It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, we hear from the author of the new book, The Pornography Wars, the past, present, and future of America's obscene obsession. Now, on Tuesday, there was a public hearing for Assembly Bill 304, which would overhaul regulations on Wisconsin's alcohol industry, changing some laws that go back 90 years. Among other things, the bill would clarify current laws, add new permits, open up options for wineries and craft breweries to sell their products directly, and establish a dedicated alcohol enforcement agency within the Department of Revenue. We're going to hear from one of the stakeholders now, the state's Tavern League. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. What, if anything, do you think ought to change about the way we produce, distribute, and or sell alcohol in Wisconsin? Have you been watching this bill? What concerns do you have about it? And if you are in business anywhere along that supply chain, love to hear from you what changes you'd like to see, what your concerns might be about how this could impact your business. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Scott Stengers, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. Scott, welcome to Central Time. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Before we dig into the bill, uh, it's pretty obvious in the name, but can you talk about who you represent there at the Tavern League, one of the many players in this bill? Yeah, I represent small mom-and-pop operators uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin that uh, involved with their business on a day-to-day basis and uh, proud to, to work in their communities. They give back to their communities and you know have been a, uh, an established uh, player in the alcohol industry for years. I think it's fair to say that everybody or many people, at least the alcohol business, have thought for a while now that something needed to change in our alcohol laws. Uh, what Can you talk about the need for some kind of update? Well, I can say this. It isn't too often that we have agreement with all tiers and all players in the industry. Uh, but this bill uh, has brought everybody together. We needed to modernize and to update and to put a robust regulatory uh, agency in place so that we can execute uh, what, what jobs we have to do on whatever tier we are and have certainty that the laws are going to be enforced. And so it's been a long time coming. This bill has taken really the better part of 10 years, and I think it's going to be positive for all the tiers, but more importantly, positive for the public because we will have some certainty and more a direction with regard to regulating alcohol in the state. Now, you mentioned the tiers there, T-I-E-R-S. I think a lot of even alcohol consumers in Wisconsin may not know what's going on behind the scenes. Can you talk about our three-tier system in Wisconsin and how it currently works? Sure. Every state has this. Uh, We have, since the repeal of prohibition, uh, three tiers. You have to pick the tier you want to be in. So we have manufacturers, manufacturers, wholesalers and retailers. So the product is manufactured, it's distributed by the wholesalers and then uh, distributed to the public at the retail level. So those are what are referred to as the three tier system. And one of the big changes is we've got these craft breweries, uh, micro distilleries, wineries who would like to manufacture their stuff and sell it at least locally in real retail outlets or might want to distribute it to a tavern or a store without necessarily having that relationship with a distributor. Does this change in laws affect that? Yeah, it's going to, it's going to make a variety of changes. The law was pretty frigid with regard to 
uh, it, in fact, it just didn't envision much of a craft industry when much of this law was put together. So uh, we're going to make changes that I believe will benefit uh, the ability of wineries, distilleries, and craft brewers uh, to have their product more available throughout the state, uh, including at uh, taverns and uh, at their retail store. So it will make significant changes in that regard, uh, but we're seeing an evolution of this uh, sector, which again, every state has experienced something similar to this. Talking to Scott Stanger with the Tavern League of Wisconsin, looking at a proposed state law in the works that's, that would change the way alcohol is regulated in Wisconsin. You could join in at 800-642-1234 if you have questions about what's going on or if your business involves a brewing or distilling or fermenting alcoholic beverages or distributing said products or serving them up to the public, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Scott, for the taverns you work with, uh, what does this change for them? What stands out to you the most? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing is certainty that the laws that we understand are going to be enforced. And to have a viable, credible industry, you have to have belief and certainty that the laws are going to be applied evenly across the board uh, in Superior and Kenosha. And, you know, we haven't seen that over the last five to 10 years. So I think to us, that's the biggest thing. We look to the state as a resource, as do municipalities. Uh, th this is complicated. There's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work that goes on with the uh, state lawyers on a lot of these laws. And we want to make certain that we know what uh, the interpretation of the law is, as well as municipal officials. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten calls from municipal officials looking for guidance, and we want to be able to have that guidance really come from the Department of Revenue in this new Division of Alcohol Regulation. Just heard uh, in the news from the other side of the glass here, a statewide bartender license. What would that look like? How would that change things for, again, your tavern owner members? Yeah, that's going to make things a lot easier, especially now when we've seen the job market has gotten so tight. It really doesn't make sense to have 1,700 municipalities issuing these licenses. Now, this doesn't take away the ability of them to issue it. They can still do it. But for the tavern owner having a an employee who can use that license and Superior and Eau Claire makes it better uh, for them and it's more uh, effective for our employment uh, in an area where we have a lot of uh, over uh, a lot of members who don't have enough uh, staff. So it will provide uniformity. Doesn't take away the ability of locals to do it. But I think it'll just be a modernization of saying, hey, these people have completed the course, they're qualified, and they can bartend anywhere in the state. It's Brianna Caller at 800-642-1234. Ron is with us in Manitowoc. Ron, hi. Thanks, Rob. Um, I'm wondering uh, what your guest and his association is doing to uh, pass on the cause of the use of the addictive drug alcohol from the taxpayers onto his association members and the brewers and distillers. In the form, Ron, of, of some kind of tax, you're saying? Absolutely. We have the second lowest beer tax in the country. 
$2 a barrel, and some states have over $13 a barrel. Ron, thanks for the call. Uh, Scott, uh, he broke up a little bit there, but Ron saying, hey, increase uh, the beer tax uh, and maybe other alcohol taxes to account for the health impacts, the health costs related to alcohol. Well, that's not part of this bill. And I mean, that debate is a fair debate, and it's one that the legislature uh, has had over the years, but it's not part of this package. Ron, thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. Related to uh, safety and alcohol, the Safe Ride program, partly funded by the the Tavern League and a change uh, in the law related to that. What's going on there? Well, this is a great story. It's a a program that's been replicated around the country. And what's in this bill is more funding. And the funding comes from convictions of OWI, so there's no state money. It comes from an, uh, someone who received or it, it gets an OWI and that conviction part of their fine. The program has been very successful, and we've seen a reduction in OWI convictions, which is a good thing. But over the years, that has meant less funding because that's one of our major funding sources. So this bill increases that $25. We think we will have a uh, the ability to fund safe rides, continue to fund them, and expand them uh, throughout the state. So. We've seen a real change, a positive change. People are planning ahead. They're using uh, Uber, they're using Lyft, and uh, they're using our Safe Ride program. So this has been a tremendously successful program, and having more funding in it uh, complements what we're doing out there today. Scott Stenger is with us, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. We're talking about a new bill that would transform how we regulate the production, distribution, and sale of alcohol here in Wisconsin. It is in the state legislature on a, a fast track of sorts right now. Want to hear from you at 800 642 one, two, three, four. Do you have questions about how all this works, how laws might change? Do you have opinions, changes you would like to see if you own a business that deals with alcohol, a, a brewery, distillery, winery, if you uh, own a tavern, work at a tavern? How about a wedding barn? This affects uh, those uh, outfits as well. Join in with your thoughts, your concerns at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Verrett. We're picking up our talk now with Scott Stenger, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. He's here to offer his organization's perspective on a new bill that would change how the alcohol industry is regulated in Wisconsin. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have as maybe an alcohol consumer yourself? Or if you are in the business, have you ever held an event at a barn venue? How is alcohol handled in that situation? What significant changes have you seen in the alcohol industry over the last decade? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Let's go back to your calls now. Chris is with us in rural Blanchardville. Chris, hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. What did you want to bring up, Chris? Well, I'm really concerned that the one group that seems to have been left out of the conversation, and I do applaud this compromise. I do think we need to update the, the regulation, but wedding barns and rural communities don't seem to have been a part of the conversation. 
Um, in towns like mine, uh, a town of 800, it's really important for us to have unique niche agricultural operations like wedding barns. And this bill put a lot more regulation, it would, would put a lot more regulation on them. And Chris, are you involved with, uh, with tourism or wedding barns in your community? Well, I run a bed and breakfast on my sheep farm. Um, so I don't really re- necessarily rely on wedding barns, but I have so many friends who are farmers who are trying to make it by adding a wedding barn or some other ag tourism operation to their farm. And this is a huge blow to that community. The proposal in here limits the amount of time, the, the amount of weddings you can have. It makes it harder to do weddings, and that you have to have an actual alcohol license. Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And Scott, I think if there's one sector related to alcohol that feels like they're left out of this, as Chris says, it is this this wedding barn industry. A lot of gray areas up to this point. Uh, what's uh, what's your thought on that part of this agreement? Well, they're not left out at all. Uh, The bill takes great steps to make sure that they can get a license. It allows 16 months to get a license. But, I mean, let's be honest here. This is alcohol. It's the Wild West at wedding barns. They have no regulations. We're not talking about a handful of wedding barns out there. There's hundreds of them. The public demands that people are licensed. They know what they're doing. And when you're selling alcohol and have alcohol, it's a serious proposition. And we had, I heard the testimony yesterday uh, from some wedding barn owners and they said, oh, we do this, 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 everything that we're doing. So what is the problem? You're, you're, you're telling us you're doing all the things that licensure requires. The public expects that you should have some minimum standards at your business. These are businesses and it is the wild west. They have no closing hours, they can have smoking, they have no licensed bartenders, nobody checking IDs. They need to be regulated. And this bill goes over the top to make sure none of them would, would go out of business. And it creates for small venues that have said, we only do a handful of events a year. It creates a special non-sale uh, permit so that they can do six events a year, not more than one a month. And that was something we heard from the wedding barn industry. So you can't be a business making hundreds of thousands of dollars and then say we don't want to be licensed the tavern league would support no licensure for everybody i mean that's a ridiculous proposal you're in business you have laws to follow the public demands that you follow the same laws that the rest of us do and you can get a license and compete with the rest of the uh, folks in the industry if you choose not to have alcohol this bill doesn't affect you Chris, thanks a lot for that call. Marty joins us next in West Allis. Marty, hi. Hi, good afternoon. So uh, I'm an elected official in my community and sat on our on our license board for bartending licenses and have a 40-plus year history in the restaurant business. And I'm wondering if the state is issuing bartenders' licenses, uh, would there be any minimum standards? Say, would a license be issued to an individual with multiple drunk driving? And if an individual were doing their job incorrectly, would there, how would the revocation process work for a, a licensed bartender? Great questions, Marty. Scott, uh, your thoughts on how that might work? Yeah, that's all already spelled out in state statute, the requirements to obtain a bartender license. So you, 
you have to meet all those requirements. And if you don't, as Marty said, you won't get it. A, a habitual law offender would not be eligible to be licensed, whether it's at the local level or the state level. So we don't change any of the licensing requirements in this bill. We just allow to have a portable uh, operator's permit, bartender's license that the state can issue. And from a lot of municipalities that we've heard from, and I'm not saying it's everybody, but issuing a license takes time and there's a cost. So this would alleviate some of that burden that municipalities currently have to go through with uh, the issuance of these operators permits. Thanks for that call, Marty. Scott, something I don't know. Can a local government, could Marty's board in uh, West Dallas say, yeah, we're going to have more stringent regulations on our bartender licenses uh, than the state does uh, now or under that the new bill? No, they have the requirements are that you're a U.S. citizen, 18. You have to complete the responsible beverage server course and not be a habitual law offender. So if you check all those boxes, then the license uh, shall be issued. So there's really not a lot of discretion. We're, we're, the standards are there to weed out bad actors, and that will continue. And it just makes it easier for municipalities, and it makes it easier for employers, and it helps with employees. You become more employable when you have a portable bartender's license that you can use all over the county or all, all over the state. Thanks again for that call, Marty, at 800-642-1234. Talking to Scott Stenger, lobbyist with the Tavern League of Wisconsin, looking at a slate of changes likely in the works, at least a big bill in the state legislature, when it comes to how the alcohol industry is regulated here in Wisconsin. Let's go back to your calls. Bob is with us in Milwaukee. Bob, hi. Hey, a quick question. Um, so my my dad, when I was a little kid, he uh, he was friends with an alcohol distributor, that sort of middle tier that your guest was talking about. And I, I guess it's been my understanding, and maybe I'm way off on this, but it's my understanding. I hear a lot of language about competitiveness and this and that. But at the end of the day, if you're a distributor for a brand of alcohol in a region, that's yours, and nobody can touch you. And there may be, you know, it may be that there's more than one, perhaps, but Generally speaking, it's the most strangely regulated kind of – it's a business, but it's a monopoly at the same time. And by the way, as far as that Wild West comment about the barns, I mean, my goodness gracious. We, we want to regulate the heck out of alcohol, but none out of guns? What the heck? Bob, thanks for the call. We don't need to go into guns, Scott. But uh, does the three-tier system, in effect, as Bob says, uh, give a monopoly to a distributor in a region if they're the only one who could distribute, you know, whatever, Rob brand beer? Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. It it gives statutory protection in territories for wholesalers, and, and it's not unique to Wisconsin. Most every state in the country has it. Doesn't mean that a retailer can't get a product outside of that territory. It's unusual, but, but Bob's right. It does essentially have a monopoly. Now, with that, those wholesalers have to agree to service. They service the small as large as long as well as the large accounts. And they have to make sure they service everybody and everybody is treated uniformly. So the trade-off is we have good service, we have uniform treatment, and we're getting product into the small rural taverns in Wisconsin. So uh, it's an area that's uh, raised some concern, but overall, over the last you know, 40, 50 years, it's worked fairly well. Bob, thanks a lot for that call. Scott, a lot of this obviously is uh, hugely important to people uh, who are in the business of alcohol for consumers. If this law passes as currently written, are people going to see a lot of difference at the the liquor store, the grocery store, the tavern, you name it? 
you know, I don't think they're going to see a lot uh, initially, um, but I think there will be a better sense, uh, especially the sharing of information from the state level. And the, and the secretary now, Secretary Barker and his staff have done a very good job of getting information out to the retailers, to the wholesalers and manufacturers, as well as municipalities. So I don't think they're going to see a, a real big change but it will help to make sure we have a positive, strong environment uh, for the regulation of alcohol beverages. Just our uh, last minute, something we've touched on a couple times, this new agency in the Department of Revenue. What are your hopes for uh, what that might do when it comes to statewide regulation and enforcement of these laws? Well, that's a great point, and that, that's what this whole bill is about. Everyone in the industry looks to a referee, and we want that referee to give us consistent, solid advice. And we're gonna follow the law. Our members are gonna follow the law, but we need to know what it is and we need to be able to work with them. Communication is the most important and effective tool here. Not just communication that our folks have with the department, but also us being able to communicate with municipalities uh, and with the general public. So I think the way this bill, and again, it took a long time to put together, but I think the results of it are going to produce uh, effective, smart regulation uh, in this state. Scott, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Yep. Thanks a lot, Rob. That's Scott Stenger, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. He joined us for a discussion about a new bill that would change the way alcohol is regulated here in Wisconsin. Still time for you to share your thoughts. You can email ideas at WPR.org. If there's a part of this bill you're concerned about, would like to see more reporting or hear more conversation about, if this influences your business as you see it for better or for worse, love to hear from you. You can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get a preview of a new documentary on Pride Month and its history here in Wisconsin. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Remember, you can follow all of these conversations anytime, stream live online at WPR.org or download the Wisconsin Public Radio app. And if you miss a conversation or there's something you want to share with a friend, or an enemy, you could find those archived. Again, WPR.org or on the Wisconsin Public Radio app. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, we take a look at the long and contentious history of pornography in the United States. First, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about bird watching. There's a certain point every spring in Wisconsin when it seems like winter is finally gone for good. We put our heavy coats away for the season, trees and flowers begin to bloom, and as WPR's Bridget Bowden tells us, we begin to hear songbirds welcoming warmer weather. Early May is an exciting time for many Wisconsinites. There's a feeling of optimism in the air, knowing sunnier days are ahead. And it's prime time for bird watchers, like Carrie Hagano, who I met up with at Wyalusing State Park. Uh, this is where the Mississippi River and the Wisconsin Rivers meet, and we're up on what's called the Wisconsin Ridge Campground, so a beautiful bluff overlooking uh, both the Wisconsin and the Mississippi. Hagano works for the Nature Conservancy and is an avid birder. She comes here every year around this time just to catch the migratory songbirds as they make their way north from their winter homes. These birds are migrating from as far as, you know, central South America. So 
thousands of miles and they're looking for breeding grounds so they're they're singing they're uh, trying to attract mates they're looking for food uh, this is a great place with all this forest cover to look for food and uh, you know some will stay here and breed and some are just passing through all the way up to to the northern parts of Canada as we stand on the path under the trees she tells me what she's hearing okay so we got two birds that just chimed in here Biz, buzz, buzz, buzz. That's our golden-winged warbler. And then we have a black-throated green warbler who's who does like a... He's got a similar buzzy sound, but he's like, zo, zeet, zo, zo, zeet. Birding with Hagenow is all about listening. Like 90% of my birding now is like listening <laughs> to what's going on around and then being like, okay, I know what this is. I know what this is. Ooh, I hear a black Bernie and I want to see him because he's gorgeous. Um... And then when you hear something that you're like, I don't know what that is, that's when you kind of seek that out too. But sometimes the birds give you visual clues too. She spots a flash of color high up in the trees. Let's see. I saw kind of where he flew up, but I didn't see where he landed. It's a scarlet tanager, one of Hagenau's favorites. So it's a, I'd say robin-sized bird, bright red. And I, I say that like a cardinal is red, and this is like someone flipped the lights on on the cardinal. That's the one, too, that has the song that can sound similar to a robin or a rose-breasted grosbeak, but they do this chick burr, chick burr. And when you hear them do that, you're like, oh, okay, scarlet tanager, gotcha. The scarlet tanager was the first bird that Hagenau identified on her own when she first started birding. When she saw it, she added it to what birders call the life list. Uh, a lot of people, when they get into birding, they start keeping that list, right? And it's it's always fun if you hear somebody say, I got a life bird. It means it's the first time they've ever seen that bird anywhere. After all that excitement, there's a bit of a lull. Hagenau says the birds calm down in the heat of the afternoon. But she says that's the nature of birding. You can know right where that bird is and you just can't get a good look at him and you can sit there for a long time and it's just not going to happen. It is. It's a, it's a game of patience. It's kind of like hide and seek or or a scavenger hunt, right? Um, because you just never know what you might see. While loosing in May might be the prime time and place for birding, but Hagenau says anyone, anytime, anywhere can enjoy looking for birds. You know, but birds are one thing that no matter where you are, you can find them. And they're going to be different everywhere, but you can go in... New York City and find birds, right? Um, or you can come here where it's forested and you're up on a bluff and there are birds. The truth is any time of year at any location, you can go out and look at birds and appreciate birds. WPR's Bridget Bowden brought us that story on bird watching at Wyalusing State Park. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, pornography has a long and complicated history in American society. Our next guest interviewed 90 people on all sides of the pornography debate, and she says it's more complicated than pro-porn versus anti-porn. In her new book, she writes that current debates over the place of pornography in our lives echo controversies all the way back to the 1840s when some of the first anti-obscenity laws were passed. She joins us now to share what she learned from that history and from 
anti-pornography advocates, pro and anti-porn feminists, porn addiction counselors, and pornography creators and performers. And you can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. How do you view the role of pornography in American society today? What do you think it says about the ways we think about sexuality in the U.S.? Do you think we need to change the way we regulate it? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Kelsey Burke is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the author most recently of The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Kelsey, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. You go through the history of, of pornography and obscenity and how we regulate it, and things have changed a lot in some ways, but uh, in a lot of other ways, the debate has remained the same. There's some consistent themes. What has stuck with us over these last 150 plus years. Yeah, I use the analogy of it's like a long marriage where like the details of the arguments might change, but there's these same underlying tensions that keep rising to the surface. So these revolve around what is the role of religion in American society? How do we find regulations when it comes to sexuality and sexual life? Um, the role of free speech um, all have been long um, sites of dispute, um, really, as you say, back to the 19th century when it comes to pornography and sexually explicit material. One of the main things you did to this book, as I mentioned, was interviewing people on various sides, various perspectives on this issue. And I think part of what you're trying to do in this book is to take away from some of the stereotypes we might have of who is anti-porn or who is pro-porn. Can you talk about that a little? That's right. Well, as a qualitative researcher, I spend a lot of time listening to people's stories. And I think when you do that, this is actually something that Larry Flint, who was the producer of Hustler magazine, wrote about Jerry Falwell, who was an anti-porn crusader. Um, he wrote an eulogy when Falwell died. And he said, you know, if you something his mother said was, if you spend en enough time with people, you'll find something to like about them. And that was actually true of Flint and Falwell. And that was true in my interactions with people across the different sides of the porn debates. And they really disrupted the stereotypes or assumptions that I had about what anti-porn activists would be. So for example, that they're all religious, um, that certainly wasn't true, and also um, broke down stereotypes that I might have had about people who were um, advocating for reform um, within the porn industry. One theme you follow, especially in the modern debate, is over uh, exploitation and harm for people uh, who participate in the pornography industry uh, voluntarily or otherwise. Concern from both ends of the spectrum, but it takes different forms. What kind of arguments did you hear? That's right. Well, so according to anti-porn feminists who have really mobilized um, in the 1970s and 80s, there aren't as many prominent groups today, but they've been saying for a long time that porn harms women, period. So there's not a lot of room for caveats in that anti-porn feminist position. There are women in porn today who call themselves feminist and to say that, yes, there are some problems with the porn industry when it comes to abuse or coercion or exploitation, but that's not everyone's experiences within the porn industry. And rather than throw out the porn industry altogether, we need to do things to make it better and safer for the women within it. So that's where there's a real tension between the anti-porn movement, which tends to see 
all forms of sex work as fundamentally exploitative and people within what I call the porn positive movement that see a lot more room for women and other people to be able to participate in the porn industry with agency, independence, autonomy, and on their own terms. You also tackle some absolute statements, uh, some that are opposite of each other. You're just hinting at this uh, in a way. Uh, Statements like you can't be for porn and be a feminist and you can't be against porn and be a feminist. How is that shaken out? Yeah, well, I talked to feminists who who came down on different sides of that, that um, for some, you know, the idea is that porn is inherently violent um, towards women. But for other feminists, they say that that actually takes away women's agency who choose to be in the industry. I talked to many sex workers who really... Um, had other choices in their lives. They weren't engaging in what is sometimes talked about as survival sex work, that they don't have other choices. These were women who had advanced degrees, had other career prospects, and they actually chose a career in sex work or pornography because they found that it offered the greatest flexibility, the greatest income in terms of the time that they put in. They were often caregivers of children or other people. And um, so so they said that they could be feminists and still work work within the industry. I want to take a look at a pair of laws passed a while back, uh, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, uh, intended uh, intended to avoid exploitation, but with some unintended consequences along the way. What uh, What happened? Yeah, these are laws that were signed by President Trump in 2018. They're often referred to as SESTA-FOSTA, referring to the acronym. And when they were originally proposed in Congress, they garnered widespread support because who can't get behind the mission that we want to stop sex trafficking? Uh, That's something that I think we can all agree is wrong, is harmful, that we need to do everything we can to make it an impossibility in the world. The problem is, is that this law had some unintended consequences. So for one, it doesn't do a great job of describing or defining what exactly sex trafficking is. It uses sex trafficking synonymously with the word prostitution. And the fear is for sex workers themselves that laws like this actually make sex work more dangerous because it it uh, makes it harder to use the internet um, to navigate um, the sexual economy. So sex workers were no longer able to use certain websites that they often used to um, talk amongst themselves about safe or dangerous dates, for example, um, that that was something that they couldn't do. Uh, internet pornography companies also worried that um, online porn sites be- could become the next target of SESTA-FOSTA, even though it seems to only target sex traffic that the language is murky enough that any sort of internet content dealing with um, sex or sexuality could be potentially under fire. So a lot of sex workers I spoke to said that they wished that policymakers would consult them, that they were not consulted in the writing of these laws that directly um, implicate them and their lives. We're talking to sociologist Kelsey Burke about her new book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Where do you draw the line when it comes to defining pornography? What should be allowed or not allowed? Are there things you'd like to see change when it comes to how it's regulated? If so, what and how? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time.
It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with sociologist Kelsey Burke about her new book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. You can join in with your questions for our guest, your thoughts on pornography and American society. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Kat is with us in Eau Claire. Kat, hi. Hi, how are you guys doing today? Good. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, um, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I think it's super important that we're talking about. Um, I work at an anti-trafficking agency in Wisconsin um, and uh, in West Central Wisconsin. And so this topic comes up a lot. And I guess uh, my question for you, Kelsey, is just really seeing the effects of pornography playing out and you know, from a younger age for youth that are really, there's not really a lot of age verification um, that is in place. It sounds like, at least from my experience, um, that is preventing kids from finding porn at young ages and how this is really affecting them um, in, you know, sexual dysfunction. Um, so, you know, 12-year-olds, young men that are having, you know, physical issues because of it um, that is or directly correlated to it. So I'm wondering, you know, taking the morality out of it, do you see this as a health crisis or do you, you know, is that something that you would say that you agree with? Thanks for the call, yeah, Kat. A, Kelsey, go ahead. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think that the anti-porn movement has, has really coalesced into um, what has been called an anti-sex trafficking movement more broadly. So not only looking at the pornography industry, but other forms of what the movement calls sexual exploitation. Um, the caller mentioned a few things. First of all, talking about pornography as a health concern that absolutely matches how people within the anti-porn movement talk about porn in the 21st century. So there have been a number of states who have passed resolutions that declare pornography to be a public health crisis and say that it is physically addictive. Um, in 2023, the caller also mentioned age verification. There have been a couple of states, Utah and Texas, that have passed age verification laws requiring pornographic websites to verify that their visitors are over 18. Um, one of the critiques of these laws is that it's unclear how to do this without violating users' privacy. So the state has not given a lot of guidance on how to do this um, without collecting um, personal data on website users. Um, there's a, a group within the porn industry called the Free Speech Coalition that just filed a lawsuit against the state of Utah over its age verification laws. Um, and they advocate instead for a sort of device level um, restrictions so that kids don't see porn. This is something that across the debate for those who are porn positive or anti-porn, they agree kids should not be looking at porn. And they also agree that pornography is too often used as sex education in American society and that that's a problem. So that's where I found some somewhat surprising common ground was that um, we really need to do more in terms of sex education in the United States. Thanks for the call, Kat. Penny joins us now in Merrill. Penny, hello. Hi, I guess I'm kind of a follow-up to that first question, and this is addressing, um, in the past, sexuality was not for children, and I'm seeing that, that more a change in society. Um, and, for instance, the UN is looking at policies that would say there is no lower age limit to where children can give consent to sexual activity. And I'm just wondering 
whether what are the detrimental effects to sexualizing our children in library drag queen shows in schools sexual education programs and access to pornography etc Penny, thanks for the call. I don't know about the UN reference she had there, but she's suggesting, uh, and, and this is a, an interesting uh, debate and part of the story, Kelsey. She mentions a drag queen story hours, say, in a library as a sexualizing activity. Uh, there will be a lot of disagreement, I think, about whether that constitutes uh, sexualizing kids or not. How does that fit into uh, this wider story? Yeah, well, I think the point is made that the anti-porn movement is connected to broader conservative efforts, including um bans on drag shows um, and other um, conservative politics. Uh, it, I think that sexuality has long been a contentious place within political debates. And we do know that in the 21st century, people are being exposed to pornographic content at a younger age than they were, say, in decades past. I think probably the best research out there suggests that Children and teens shouldn't be looking at porn, especially as their only form of exposure of sexual information. And this is a problem that is recognized by people across the board. It's difficult to have conversations across, quote unquote, the political aisle when conversations about teenagers and children's access to pornography are being conflated with other conservative issues like drag show bans. So a lot of people would say that these things are not related and that to conflate the two makes it difficult to have conversations across the left and the right or across conservatives or progressives. Um, so all that is to say that I think the polarization that is so often talked about is true also in pornography debates, and that's how it gets connected to broader politics. Thanks for the call, Penny. Oh, we just have a few minutes left, Kelsey, and I want to get into concerns about uh, the way the, the parts of the porn industry uh, treat women, obviously, uh, and women of color in particular. You talk about that some in the book and efforts to, I guess, make better porn in a way. Yeah, that's right. So, Commercial mainstream porn has long been criticized for um, basically relying on sexism and racism for pornographic films. And so a lot of really negative, damaging, violent stereotypes. At the same time, workers within that industry have always exhibited what, as a sociologist, I might call agency. So ability to find spaces of autonomy and choice, um, though the amount of power they have has always reflected broader social inequality. I'll just bring up one example from a historian who I quote in the book, Murray Miller-Young. She talks about the porn industry in the past. Um, and so, for example, back in the 1930s, she writes about how Black women in sex work almost certainly faced racism and likely abuse and harassment. But that was also true for Black women working in other industry sectors. So domestic labor, one of the only reputable work options for many Black women where sexual assault and rape was almost guaranteed. So Miller Young cautions us to assume that sex work is, is somehow um, worse for Black women than other industries, since racism and sexism are present in all social institutions. So this is something that I heard from a lot of women within the industry, that this is a problem of sexual harassment that is not unique to porn um, and really needs to be reckoned with in in broader society. Kelsey, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Kelsey Burke, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 
She talked to us about her new book. It's called The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, Pat Sajak says he's retiring from Wheel of Fortune after a super long run of selling vowels to contestants. Look at that and some of the biggest game shows in all of TV history, and you can share your favorites. You can get us started right now. Email ideas at WPR.org, or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page your favorite game show of all time. And if you're a Wheel of Fortune fan, tell us about it. Plus, summer is a great season for giving, getting involved, and volunteering from uh, run-walk fundraisers to special events for Father's Day, the 4th of July, and more. An expert on philanthropy gives us advice on making a difference in your community. That and more tomorrow here on Central Time.